Welcome to Opening the Door with Joyful Classrooms. I am Brittany Gaffod, and today we talk focus with Dr. Mike Schmoker. We're never, ever taught how to teach, really taught how to teach. We touched on some things that might uh, at some point have some importance, but overall, none of that pointed to the things that it seemed to me mattered the most. Now, when I went from those pre-service courses into student teaching, that was really the shock of my life, perhaps my entire professional life. Thank you so much for joining me. For this episode, I had the great honor to speak with Dr. Mike Schmoker. Dr. Schmoker is a former administrator, English teacher, and football coach. He has written several best-selling books and dozens of articles for educational journals, newspapers, and for Time Magazine. His most recent bestseller is the expanded 2018 edition of Focus, elevating the essentials to radically improve student learning. His previous bestsellers include Leading with Focus and Results Now. Speaking with Dr. Schmoker reminds me of how many competing pressures teachers, administrators, parents, and students feel to achieve or master so, so many skills and tasks. Dr. Schmoker helps us take a step back and reevaluate what our real priorities are and gives us permission to focus, focus, focus. In other words, he illustrates by simplifying and focusing on a small number of shared goals, priorities, and values that we would do dramatically better in the way of student outcomes. This is a principle shared and confirmed by volumes of study and research including the work of Michael Fullen. Throughout my experience in the classroom, as well as in leadership, I know I have always felt a sense of constantly tumbling in an avalanche of expectations, standards, tasks, and more. Mike uses the word shock to describe what it feels like to enter the classroom for the first time. I want to share his message because I believe focus is one of the critical shifts we need to make in education and as parents if we want to truly make a difference in the lives of children. Thank you again for joining me. And with that, I introduce Dr. Mike Schmoker. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. And I generally begin with the question because I'm always curious, what was life like for you as a young student? Well, I, I, I guess going to a Catholic school, uh, there was a, a bit of a, um, a bit more of an academic emphasis, perhaps, than what uh, some of my public school colleagues were, were getting, for which I'm uh, very grateful. Uh, things like literacy and, and uh, an emphasis on doing lots of wide reading uh, got more attention in the school that I attended again, than, than what's, what some of my peers were getting. Um, I was a kid who did pretty well in school, but mostly, and had most, most of my affection was for things like English, history, social studies, and just reading. I was a bookworm from the time I was a kid, and that sure made the nuns happy. I bet. That's funny. My mom is also Catholic school educated. My grandmother is from Nicaragua and was mm -hmm. raised in a convent. So wow. yeah, I've heard lots of Catholic school stories. That's a neat <laughs> connection. How did you go from there to find your way into education? Well, that's a good question. Um, I 
think over the years, because I liked school in the main and had just a few teachers that really inspired me, one of whom was a, a fabulous fifth grade teacher named Karen Redpath, uh, who I dedicated my last book to, in fact, um, who just taught us in a way that was inspiring. It made me know on some level, even before I began to think of a career that I'd like to do what she's doing and doing it the way she does it. And her emphasis was on some of the very same things that I write about these days, which is lots of reading, lots of discussion, everyone participating, uh, very active teaching, but uh, again, large amounts of reading and note-taking and talking about what we read and then writing about what we read. Um, Something in that fifth grade experience, along with some other teachers, I think made me think I'd like to do that and do it well someday. That's really touching. What's a particular memory you have from her class? She's a she she's a wonderful person. And I after, oh, gosh, you know, 45 years or so, I actually found her online and oh, called her Lord. at home. And since then, we've been pen pals. Oh, how neat. And tell me her name one more time. (laughs) Her name is Karen Redpath. Wow. What an amazing story. Wow. Yeah. What what are you currently working on now, Mike? Right now I'm working with all the time I have at home these days. Right. (laughs) (laughs) On maybe, you know, I I never know until I'm a little deeper into a project if if I'll actually bring it to fruition. But the book I might possibly want to complete has to do with all the various opportunities that exist for schools, not just to be better, but to be vastly better. I've talked, I've written about these things and of course presented about them for years, but I, I like to put between two covers a concentration only on the, the vast opportunities that exist in the areas of literacy, for instance. The, the, the plain fact is, if we got kids to read way more than they currently do. If we got them to write even significantly more than they do now, and if they were to to talk uh, more about what they read and learned, we would see not just gains, but we'd see sizable gains. If you match that with with these realities, and these are, are uh, to use Jim Collins' term, these are brutal facts about current education. If we take a hard look what teachers do and do not get, say, in their undergraduate pre-service preparation. It, it's, it's, it's not even close to what it ought to be. If it was even, uh, even adequate to the task of ensuring that teachers left with some reasonable knowledge and ability to implement good lessons, and as I define them and as so many define them, if they could implement decent lessons, if they knew how to rough out a decent literacy-rich curriculum with peers, if they if they learned those things in undergraduate preparation, if those things were reinforced and given um, prime primacy, really given priority in their professional development, um, and if those things were reinforced in student teaching, uh, we'd have schools. I believe that would make a kind of a quantum leap in terms of quality, in terms of students enjoying school, and much higher rates of graduation, college readiness, 
uh, career readiness, you name it. Well, if it means anything at all, I really hope you do write that. It would be awesome to have that between two covers. And I do want to ask you, why do you think that that type of preparation doesn't currently exist in our teacher preparation programs? Well, that, that is, a, again, a, a really good question and, and a difficult one to answer uh, because there's so many, com- uh, such an interesting combination of forces at work, starting at the top with what teachers are trained to do. I think perhaps there's a certain complacence that, uh, that characterizes average public education in America, education in general. Um, because we look at our country and its economy and we think, gosh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing so well relative to it, in many respects, relative to, say, the rest of the world. And we look at our education system and think, well, it must be, again, adequate to the task of equipping a population to create this, uh, this economy we're fairly proud of. Uh, that doesn't put much pressure on, and again, I'm just talking about undergraduate preparation, which I think is is the place to begin. It doesn't put much pressure on that institution to focus on the very best practices, the most evidence-based proven practices. What it does do is allows for academicians in higher ed to do what academicians do, which is they tend to focus on theories, on attractive theories. They tend to focus on new things, innovative practices, which appeal uh, either to them or to people in general. Um, and when that basic, that basic culture exists uh, at, the, at the highest levels, I believe it trickles down, certainly trickles down into uh, what happens in schools, what happens in professional development especially, and uh, it, it prevents us from focusing on the things which would make our, our schools so much better, partly because it just isn't that clear to us. It isn't vivid enough that our failure to embrace the very, very best practice, I don't, know, I don't even mean best practice. I really mean the very best of the best. We, we have every opportunity from pre-service to PD to everything we learn in the system not to not to obsess over and focus on practices which would allow us to uh, transform education in ways we never imagined possible. Well, I love that you keep bringing up this word focus, and I'm going to get to that next, because I found out about you years ago through a very dear friend of mine, Tina, who's up in the Fort Bragg Unified School District, which is in a sort of rural, coastal, beautiful Mm -hmm. place of California. Mm -hmm. In any case, I was talking about focus, focus, focus. And then she was saying, well, have you read Mike Schmoker? And that's when I bought your book. And then I've been, um, you know, following you and listening to your wisdom. And I was there listening to your keynote speech at the Plain Talk conference. Mm -hmm. In any case, I'm curious what was your history in teaching and administration and what brought you to this idea of how important focus is? 
Well, it happened gradually, but to tell you the truth, it it happened. Uh, it, it began to happen long ago when I was taking uh, methods courses and English teaching methods courses in the university. Again, as an undergraduate and as a senior, I began to take these classes knowing I'd be a secondary English teacher and expecting my professors to tell me things like really how to put uh, a curriculum together that ensured that students did a lot of reading and talking and writing. I expected them to teach us very basic things like, like how to evaluate and grade a paper, for instance, just how to teach writing in general. It was none of that. It was none of that. Instead, it was how to make a bulletin board. It was how to put little packets together that went inside of little folders for students to do independent work and do things like word splashes and, and fill out crossword puzzles that were supposed to teach them vocabulary. Um, and we were never, ever taught how to teach, really taught how to teach. We touched on some things that might uh, at some point have some importance, but overall, None of that pointed to the things that it seemed to me mattered the most. Now, when I went from those pre-service courses into student teaching, that was really the shock of my life, perhaps my <laughs> entire professional life, was to go from that very disappointing uh, undergraduate uh, experience into schools where the cooperating teacher I was with expected me to have a series of activities ready to go for each classroom period, to have film strips, to have cute little worksheets and little hands-on activities for students. And this was in a high school, mind you. This was high school English at that point. This was unlike anything I ever imagined uh, English or English class or, or uh, language arts class should be like. That shock is, was probably, even as I'm talking to you, I'm almost realizing that really set the pace for me to always be on the lookout right up through my initial teaching years into my years uh, as an administrator. Uh, I began to just see and to just ache for people to do the things that mattered the most and to jettison and to, to uh, stop doing those things which had so little to do with educating a kid, with making a kid more knowledgeable and literate and smart. Amen. You're reminding me, I was sitting here remembering my student teaching years and I had hives and panic attacks. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's so hard, that word uh, shock. That's how I describe also when my son was a newborn, a similar mm. sense of uh, what have, what have I done? Um, but you know, those of us who are gritty, we just keep on keeping on. And I love that the way that you said that in terms of, you know, uh, keeping your eyes open on what matters the most. Mm. As I as I follow you and I read your books and listen to your wisdom, I hear some key language that I want to kind of spotlight and unpack with you. You talk about a coherent curriculum and then also authentic literacy. And then also when I was listening to you at the Plain Talk conference, you were talking about a very important way of looking at the Common Core Anchor Standards and sort of the sort of 
top priorities, the things that we really need to focus on if we're going to have our classrooms be literacy-rich environments. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me and my audience what you mean when you say a coherent curriculum? Sure. Um, Coherent simply means that a deliberate effort was made by more than one person. Let's keep it minimalistic here. Could be you and me, could be the three people that we, who, the three of us teach a certain course in a single school. We sit and we look at, say, and I have to stop myself uh, to say it's, it's different for English and language arts than it is for all other subjects. Uh, let's start just for fun with all subjects except for English. We would have to look at the state standards and say, all right, is there the right amount of content and topics to teach here? If there's too many, we have to reduce it down to to an amount that will allow us to teach all of those topics and content well. Because if we have 13 months worth of content and topics and we try to teach it in nine months, uh, that's a mess. That's incoherence, if you will. So coherence is simply achieved by us saying, all right, these are the things we're going to teach. We've done a little bit of reduction. These are the most important things. Now we're going to lay them out in approximately the same sequence and hold each other to following that basic sequence with a little bit of wiggle room. And we sure as heck don't mean you and I teaching the same topic each day, lockstep, or with the same kind of lesson. doesn't mean that. There's flexibility, sensible flexibility built in here. And, and one other aspect of that, which can transition us to English language arts and English classes, is that virtually every subject, there ought to be an adequate amount of text, and I even believe a certain amount of discussion and writing that... Uh, that, in, is, that infuses that content-rich curriculum in all subjects except for English. Now, let's move to English finally. English is a little different. Instead of looking at the state standards and saying, oh, okay, let's look at all these and pick their favorites, strangely enough, the I believe the most knowledgeable, smart, wise people in our business uh, are much more sold on uh, almost ignoring the Common Core state standards. I'm talking about those numerous grade-by-grade standards. And instead we say, in English and in language arts, these are the books the kids are going to read. These are the poems. These are the articles. And they're going to, they're going to discuss those. They're going to carefully read them, annotate. They're going to underline annotate, discuss, and write in short bursts or in longer formal papers about those texts. That's English. Now, if you wanted to add standards, I'm just ballparking this, but the, and, and I discuss this at more length in my books, of course, but I'm more sold on analyzing, comparing, and con- asking questions that require students to analyze, compare and contrast, evaluate, synthesize, that's enough, in my opinion. Uh, the only other standards you'd need are a decent rubric or scoring guide for the writing students do. Uh, the best schools I know and the best teaching I myself ever did was with no more than 
those kinds of standards to inform English language arts. Well, having worked with many different teams, you know, we could get into an exhaustive conversation about the standards. And I, I think the thing that I really love about your message and sharing it is how important it is to be scrutinizing of what we're emphasizing. And I can't tell you how many teams I've worked with who have this profound nervousness and anxiety with not teaching every single standard to mm. mastery. Now, of mm. course, the reading foundational skills make this whole thing very complicated because in the area of teaching structured literacies or um, teaching students how to decode, it's difficult this conversation is very different. But to zoom out just in a general sense, and I think we're going to move into this idea of what is authentic literacy, but I worked with so many teams who have are almost paralyzed by this idea that it's okay to pick a small number of things that you're going to get your that you're going to guarantee that your students will be great at. And that when the Common Core Standards came out, and I analyzed them. It was my, I was in district leadership at the time. I really said, oh, these are the big picture here is we're trying to put an emphasis on how important it is to communicate and that communication is an interaction between oneself and text as we bring knowledge in and then how we express that. And sometimes it's through speaking and sometimes it's through writing. And obviously, yes. just like mm -hmm. you said, synthesis is a huge part of that. But I think teams are paralyzed or they don't feel like they have the permission to focus. They feel it's, I, the, it's not my joke. I, I borrowed it from my from my colleague, Allison Rice, but she says NCLB has caused PTSD. <laughs> and I think, right. And I think that we as teachers feel this immense um, burden and marriage to this idea of fidelity. You described it as like lockstep. Um, and I trying to remind teams that as we embraced the PLC culture and I don't know if it's okay with you to use coherent curriculum and guaranteed and viable curriculum sort of as synonymous in a sense. But part of that process was zooming out and saying, we can't do it all. We have to focus. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate the time that you've spent really actually giving teachers and leaders permission, frankly, because you have a lot of credibility giving everyone permission to step back and say, okay, what is really at the heart of this issue? Kind of the way you were describing your your Catholic schooling um, is to stick to what is most important, and that is that we are able to interpret text, interpret speech, poems, literature, whatnot, um, and that we can use all of these different types of literacies, you know, to move out of the ELA and into math or science or history, um, but that it's all really the same thing. Can you bring an idea? Can you use other people's information to solve problems? And then can you express that process? So I love that about your work. Mm. <laughs> th th there you go. That's, and that's the kind of language I think we need to employ. Um, f somewhat general terms that have to do with communication, engaging content, synthesizing, processing it, and then being able to express it, uh, you know, ver orally or in writing. Um, in ways that are helpful to other people. 
if if only that if only those were our standards sure we could add some some important standards to all that but uh, an awful lot of people became really effective communicators using a fairly small common sense set of you know what we might call uh, language standards communication standards indeed and so when you say authentic literacy what do you mean? By authentic, I simply mean almost kind of going back to, uh, and this may sound a little bit repetitive, just going back to uh, reading a book, reading the first chapter, being asked as you read the first chapter to look for things about the main character and to then talk about that at the end of the chapter with the class. And then to write something about what you think about that main character after you've exchanged ideas with others. Now, that to me is a very authentic experience. Um, inauthentic is, again, this may go back to things I've said already. Inauthentic is breaking things down into having students complete worksheets that have little cause and effect exercises, uh, word splash exercises. Um, an awful lot, in fact, the great majority of what goes on in English classes uh, is it has very little to do with the ability to simply read effectively, speak clearly, and, and write, with, uh, write persuasively and interestingly. Um, that's that's what literacy really is and always will be. The al the alternatives that that have been trotted out in the last all oh, generation or more that go back really, if you look look hard at it, they go back to the language and almost the culture of test taking. That's not authentic literacy. That's something something else. That's a that's a perversion of literacy. Well, I think that's very liberating, and also it. I because my brain just I don't know if it is similar to yours or not, but um, I tend to discard the things I don't need to remember. But one of the <laughs> things that I often <laughs> re remind teachers of somewhere in uh, John Hattie's effects list of effect sizes, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I often remind teachers I'll point to classroom academic discussion. And it has an effect size of 0.93. And then scaffolding is almost like half of that. And I feel like I work with a literacy grant here in California. And one of the statistics that we you know rum throw around is that we would want students reading and writing and speaking about what they read in any one of these literacy contexts. And we can th throw math problems in there as well. We would want them to be doing so about 80 or 90 percent of mm -hmm. the of that particular block and it tends to be more like 10 percent and what we find is that that other 80 to 90 percent of the time is the teachers trying to quote unquote scaffold the students into these texts or tasks where if we embraced what you're describing in terms of authentic literacy then we, we would both be getting the students to work harder than teachers, which, bless their hearts, would be a big relief for teachers, mm -hmm. but also to really embrace the power of of discussion after text. And then that that's really, uh, I totally agree with you. Am I, am I getting, did I understand you correctly when you said that authentic literacy piece? 
Oh, I believe so. Yes. Yes. Um, if, if what I'm hearing you say is students, you know, you, we, you go back to things that sound almost terribly simplistic. You have students read, you have them talk about what they read, and you have them write about what they read. And sometimes I think of people like Doug, Doug Lamov have kind of called my attention to uh, the necessity to read something, then write about at least a little bit, write a little bit about what you just read, then talk, because you'll be a little more ready mm -hmm. to talk, whether it's with a partner or whether it's in a whole class discussion, and then write more formally. So writing can be inserted, you know, in, in, in you know, again, in, in short bursts, as well as longer formats at any point in the process. But those are just good old simple elements of literacy that have served people well for millennia. Amen. And then I can just hear some of my administrators or leadership friends getting nervous here, right? Because we have this massive pressure of state testing and accountability and all of these various different pressures that I think everybody mm. feels. What What is something that you would say to help mitigate that anxiety? Well, it's a, it's a case that almost has to be made uh, at, at some length, which, I, which is exactly what I've done, and I think just about every book I've ever written, just to, to help people to see that researchers whose names and work are most, most educators are quite familiar with, the, some of the most uh, widely respected uh, edu literacy educators and researchers have shown us that authentic, fundamental, uh, the most engaging, in fact, forms of literacy are the very best route to higher test scores, number one. And number two, I always invite people, and I've done little exercises with groups of teachers where I say, let's suppose we engage in this kind of very simple literacy activity that culminates in writing. It begins with reading and then discussion, culminates in writing. Now take a look at, the, at whatever standards document you're looking at and circle or check the standards that you think are, number one, significant and, and worthy of being taught, and secondly, which are in fact covered by the most authentic forms of reading, writing, and speaking. And they make that great discovery that in essence, their bases are covered. Yeah. Well, I just, I guess I, I want to just speak to the energy that exists in a lot of team meetings and classrooms and teacher teams and administrators. And it's it feels often to me like such a pressure cooker of expectations mm. and pressures and all of these things. And I what I just adore about your wisdom and your message, and I, I really encourage everybody who hears us talking to go out and read everything that you've written, including this very exciting new project you seem to be embarking on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, because um, I was actually in an interview that I did last week, we were talking about dyslexia specifically, but also about how the students are sentient beings. We have all of these students uh, sitting in front of us. They are 
picking up on every single bodily movement, our expression, our feelings, mm. and this unbelievable sense of anxiety to meet every single one of these standards and teach them to mastery. What I want to say strongly and to agree with what you said is trying to do that, there's just overwhelming research and evidence that it's going to have the inverse effect, which is that we are actually lowering student outcomes by trying to do it all. And so I just, I, I embrace your message wholeheartedly. And I, I want to just ask you a couple of additional questions. One of them is if I'm a parent and I want to do some simple things at home with my students to also support authentic literacy, what are some things that we could maybe embrace in our homes that would that would have this impact? Well, it's it's really quite easy. Uh, let's let's start with writing. Um, a, a lot of parents, we may never get parents to teach students to write. Let's just assume that, you know, the average, I, I don't know that that's something we sh can or should expect from parents. If they want to have their kids write in, in any way they think appropriate, great. But it's probably not going to happen so much. But the first two, any parent who makes it a priority can find engaging texts. And I, I don't just mean great books and stories, but also very engaging nonfiction articles on any topic whatsoever. They're, the world is full of such texts that are readable and interesting and read those along with their children and talk about them. That's it, period. Just do that as much as you can. And of course, it never hurts to do it on some sort of regular or routine basis uh, in order for it to become a, a, a habit. Um, just that would make a tremendous difference. Amen. I'm a mom and a literacy specialist, and I can definitely say that it is a real struggle to get my son to write at home. So I'm with you on that one. However, I do have the regular reading <laughs> together and discussing. We actually just recently, um, I and, and him and his stepsister, we all read The Giver mm. and had a good debate about whether or not Jonas did the right thing. It was a lot of fun. Um, Perfect example. So me. much fun. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, so to close, I, I just want to, if you had, you know, magical powers and you could go out there and change things for, for all children and teachers, what are, what are some things um, that you would like to see happen for them? Well, it's, it's, it's always hard to say one thing, of course, but if you had to pick one, you had to pick one, I, I guess it would be, it would be reading. In a way, it's what we just talked about. It's what you did with, with your child and the giver. If that kind of reading went on both at home or at least, at least, because we know there are many homes in which that's not going to happen, but if it happened at school, on a frequent basis, where a kid went to English class thinking, well, what are we going to read and talk about today? On most days, on an average day in school, uh, there'd be, I would be, it would put me out of a job, and that would be a wonderful thing. So by extension, I would have to say, if there was one thing I would kind of hope for, wish for, for teachers, it would be that starting with their undergraduate training for, for new teachers, 
to professional development, to everything that gets stressed by the school itself and, and, and teacher evaluation, that there'd be an enormous amount of emphasis on making sure the kids imbibe large, you know, by today's standards, you know, unprecedented amounts and proportions of, uh, of reading. Just that one thing. And of course, all the good things that can come of that, the analysis, the discussion, the writing, I think those things somewhat naturally flow from reading. But uh, people who read a lot uh, become well-educated. It's just about that simple. Amen. They really do. And I think we're going to go ahead and and wrap up here. But I, I just want to say how much I have will always cherish this moment and discussion with a hero of mine. And um, it's an interesting juxtaposition because I just interviewed Timothy Odegaard, who's a dyslexia specialist. And so mm. I think for teachers, we are always sort of stuck. I'm, I guess I'm just thinking from the teacher perspective, when you're working with struggling readers, how do you bring them in to reading more? And that's just a inquiry question. I'm going to just leave it right there because there's mm. there's lots of information out there about um, how to achieve those things. And so everybody can just stay tuned. But what I, I think that this particular conversation is a great place to kind of always fall back on. And I think we do have to kind of just chill out and realize this is all much simpler uh, than it seems, and that it is okay, and it is actually imperative to focus. And so I'm just so grateful that you made time for me. Well, my pleasure, and thanks so much for the kind words. I hope it's helpful to you and to your listeners. Brittany, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. You take care. You too. Be sure to subscribe to Opening the Door. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a review. See you next time.